sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, Brian. Oh, it's rumor and innuendo about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. We, you know, we all make decisions that we may come to be at least confused by later in life, if not fully ashamed of. Maybe it was a haircut you had. Maybe it was a date you went on. Something you paid too much money for at the time. Is there anything that comes to mind when I describe this in terms of regrets for you? Uh, mullet. Uh, <laughs> or, like first marriage. Uh, I don't know. You don't have sure. to keep going. You don't have to keep going. Those, both of those all are good. things. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe, like me, it was what you used to publicly list as one of your favorite movies. Now, <laughs> I, sh- I should be clear that even now, I'm very aware, and I think we've talked about this, that my taste gets turned down a notch when rock and roll is involved in the plot of any film. Uh, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody in the theater countless times because it was an adrenaline rush to me. I, I, I wasn't there to be critical. I have no idea if that movie is good or not. I will not even engage in a conversation about whether or not that movie is good. Uh, I will just say that I was charmed and captivated and moved by a portrayal of a lost icon, which, you know, that is what it is, right? I didn't yeah, care. Yeah. Loved it as well. Took my daughter. Loved it as well. And, and this is common for me. The, the worst music movie in my opinion, is better than a mediocre to decent movie in any other genre. Okay, yeah, sure. I'll go for that. That's the excuse I'm going to use to justify that I have always loved the 2001 musical comedy drama film by Stephen Herrick from a script by John Stockwell starring Mark Wahlberg and Jennifer Aniston. Are we talking about Rockstar? (laughs) Are we just talking about Rockstar? Do you know what this movie is about? Do you know the plot of this movie? Have I seen this movie? In the theater, and I owned it. <laughs> I, I still own it on DVD. Yeah. I was going to, I mean, the lo- the visual would be lost on the audience, but I was going to hold it up because yeah. in prep for this episode, I definitely put in the DVD player two nights ago uh, and I, revisited I, I de- it. I definitely have walked around, and it hasn't happened in a long time, but walked around and went, stand up and shout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, but if, if, so, you, if you're not familiar, the, yeah. the briefest synopsis of this is, First, it takes place in the 80s, though set design and costuming is so laughable that most of the characters look like they're headed to an 80s-themed Halloween party as opposed to actually living in the 80s. Yeah, it's, it is. It just feels cheesy. It's so cheesy. From the beginning. The, the wigs are so amazing that, actually, there's a scene where one character reveals he's wearing a wig, and it's supposed to be this breathtaking, heartbreaking reveal. Um, but... All of the wigs that everyone are wearing are so trash that it takes a second to realize as the viewer that that's supposed to be shocking because you're just sort of like, well, yeah, everybody has wigs on. Why Why am I shocked that you just took your wig off? It's the 80s. <laughs> you're wearing a wig. Uh, but the plot, the plot is that this man child played by Mark Wahlberg has a tribute band to this fictionalized act called Steel Dragon. Yeah. And Steel Dragon has a has issues with their lead singer. Which opens the door for a new lead singer. So why wouldn't you get the lead singer from a tribute band? When I saw this, it came out in September of 2001. It came out the Friday before September 11th. So that's interesting cultural context. Uh, Wow. Yeah. And I think I saw it on DVD first. I don't think I saw it in the theater. I would have been in my freshman year of college at this point. So it was probably in sometime in 2002 that I finally saw this movie. But I did not realize at the time that this story 
was, I mean, the reason the movie existed is that the company bought the rights to a New York Times profile of an actual person. Now, do you want to take a guess at who this person is? Uh, okay. I thought the person was Rob Halford. No. It's not. Okay. I always thought it was wrong. Well, you're no, you're kind of right. So the, the New York Times profile was of a person named Tim Owens. Oh, it's the guy who replaced. Yeah. So Tim, gro- Tim grows up in Akron, Ohio in the 70s and 80s, listening to BTO and Aerosmith and Rolling Stones on vinyl with his dad. He's in the Madrigal Choir at school. Did you ever do that? I don't even know what that is. I was in it for like five minutes and dropped it. Uh, What's the magical choir? Madrigal, Madrigal, M A D R I G A L. Clearly, Um, it's like medieval. It's medieval themed. Like it's not that you're singing medieval. I think it's a medieval style, but it's uh, yeah. Somebody else could tell you. I'm sure. That's a little more sophisticated than where I grew up, dude. So (laughs) they didn't have a magical choir at Lewisburg High. Um, what? I mean, I'm still, I'm stunned. Like, I don't even, I can't believe this is a real freaking thing that like existed where you at anyone's high school. Yeah. Just, I mean, we had in Arkansas, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that you didn't have it in, in Tennessee. That seems viable. I'm, I'm going to say no. We had DECA. I remember that. What's that? Um, What's DECA? It's like the, it, it's, isn't like the marketing like club. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or something. I'm just making up things. Like we didn't have things, <laughs> whatever that is. Like we didn't have that. Okay, keep keep moving. So, so Tim, by sixth grade, would go as far as getting in front of his class every Friday and singing a song. This is a weird little tidbit about him. He eventually does something that happened to a young Mark Murdoch, and I think changed your life, which is he discovers Kiss. Yep. This is the gateway drug. It leads him to hard rock and heavy metal, and he still remembers his older brother bringing home an album called screaming for vengeance, uh, by a band called Judas priest and being very impressed by how cool that band looked on the back. I want to give a shout out to Chuck McCormick, uh, who was in my study hall class who had a dog named Judas priest. (laughs) And let me tell you what that, that drew me in. So let me ask you this. Do you know, I mean, we're skipping ahead here, but do you know the inspiration for the name Judas Priest? Uh, not, no, not off the top of my head. That's, okay. that's, that's blurred away. Okay. I probably did. And- I'm going to play it for you. I'm going to play you the song that inspired the band to call themselves Judas Priest. This is 100% documented. Well, Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, they were the best of friends. Whoa. Yeah, that's Bob Dylan from John Wesley Harding in 1967. It's a song called The Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. And that, my friends, it, it, while you have thought all this time that it was supposed to be some sort of nod to Jesus Christ because it's it's been used to fill in TV edits of movies where they say Jesus Christ for, I don't know, 20 years or something. Uh, yeah. No, it was it was from a Bob Dylan song, which is sort of the least metal thing I can think of. It's almost so not metal, it becomes metal, like comes around the back. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's not. I uh, like anyway. that you didn't know that because I feel like that is a, a a real lost artifact. Yeah, and the fact that they would choose that, um, if you really took a long hard look at the look. And everything that they adopted, right? And in hindsight, yeah, 
everything. Yeah, go yeah. Ahead. So we'll, t- we'll, t- we'll we're going to get into the look because the look is a very distinct decision that has made it a very certain point. But let's go back to Tim for a second. We're getting distracted. By the end of high school, he's trying out for bands and he's getting told no. And he says that this is because quote every song I sang. I sang like Brian Johnson from ACDC. Probably had a tough time with that. Uh, he, he gets a little better. And eventually he ends up starting a band called Damage Incorporated, uh, who when they move on from playing covers, change their name to Brain Aside. This is another quote from him. It became heavy with these jazzy parts. It was like Slayer meets Anthrax meets some sort of jazz band. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, nothing's really painting out for Tim, though. He, he loves music. Uh, but he's keeping a day job. He has a kid. Um, and then he gets this opportunity to play with this group called U.S. Metal, uh, where he replaces. He used to go see them play, and they were they, they played metal covers, and he would go see them play. They lose their singer. He takes over for him. Uh, and then he gets this opportunity to be in this band called Winter's Bane. Now, <laughs> Winter's Bane gets a record deal with Massacre Records. Are you, New to me. Okay. Yeah. So that label is still around. And it's fun to go look at their roster because it at, at one point in time or another has boasted bands with names like Hatriot and Atrocity. <laughs> I love it when I see like big festivals that are like all like super death metal that I don't know what they are. And it's so fun to like try to read the font. A dude. And, it, so and then when I, I you're, you're there, talking about the one that's happening soon, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's out of control. Region. That So there is one in our, in our region that is happening. Uh, and you can't read the poster. And it doesn't help that they made the poster blue and green. Like, it's very strange. A lot of artistic choices were made. But, yeah, you cannot... I, I'm like, why even make a poster? Because there's no way I can decipher what that says. Yeah, that show, entire thing should have, like, like a, a pentagram upside down <laughs> with, with, a, with a QR code underneath it. <laughs> Scan this for lineup. And it just takes you to the, the festival thing. And it's all like just whoever, written in sans serif. <laughs> whoever decided to put that in a in print, that was not Ooh, That was a rough one. Okay, so wait, back to Winter's Bane, uh, who I feel like could be at that festival. Winter's Bane goes to Germany in 1993 to record an album because they get this record deal. It's a German record label. It goes to Germany. And, and so they go to Germany, and they find that there is like no scene to be a part of while they're in Germany. And so they have this agent who pitches them on this idea. He's like, you basically have two scenarios. You can either go in and pay play as winter's Bane and you can book a tour and you can get paid like 50 bucks a night or people love metal over here. You could book yourself as a Judas priest cover band. Hear me out. No, listen, you can book yourself as a Judas priest covers band. And then you can also book yourself as the opener, as Winter's Bane. So Winter's Bane plays 20 minutes, and you play your originals, and then you come out, and you just put on costumes, and you play as, Ju- as Judas Priest, and you'll make like $1,000 a night, as opposed to 50 So is it the idea that you do both, or you choose no, one? No, they do both. So they literally do this. They literally drive around and play as both bands, and they book a bunch of dates doing both things as their own opener. I think and they t- dress... They dress up like Judas Priest. That's sort of. I mean, they put on enough to obfuscate that they were the opening band, but it, like, I, I think it's a pretty open secret that they're they're both bands. But you know, I actually, I think we've talked about this. I saw Denver ska band Five Iron Frenzy do this very early in their career, where they opened for themselves as a hardcore band. I I wish more people did stuff like that. 
and like had the opportunity to do that where they had like an alter ego, like the Bronx being a mariachi band right. or anything where they could just do something else. Well, I, I last fall, I think I texted you. I went and saw Rat Boys play, who is a Chicago indie band. Great, great band. They came out after their set. They were like, hey, we have some friends who, who jumped on this date and want to come out. And they like half of them and some people from, I think the opening bands or something, or maybe their merch guy. I don't remember who all was in the band, but they come out dressed as the Ramones and they played a Ramones cover set. Oh, that's cool. It was, it was very I, fun. I think any way that you can connect that dot between that opening set and the other set, it creates a unique experience. Like I saw, I, I went to go see Dylan 20 plus um, years ago and the nitty gritty dirt band opened up oh, yeah. and I'm like, eh. I'm like, well, this is kind of cool. Um, and they get finished, and then Bob just comes on stage, and that's his backing band. Yeah, no clue, didn't know, and then it just made—I don't know—it just made it like a little extra special, yeah. sort of, because there's something, there's something kind of neat when you when you're able to take that thing that's separate at the beginning and make it part of the the bigger part, that the more like the headliner part. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so that's what that's what they do. And this is Tim's first taste of tribute band life. Uh, eventually, Winter's Bane will break up. End of '95. Next to last show, they play in Erie, Pennsylvania, at a place called Sherlock's. And there's these girls that were fans of the tribute act, who I guess they sort of knew. And they also claim that they know Scott Travis, who at the time is the drummer for Judas Priest. Okay. And you know, it's before phones, but in some way, shape, or form, these girls have a crappy video camera and they tape the show. Now, this is Tim. Owens, talking about the show. Quote, the thing is, we weren't very good that night. I sang well, but the band wasn't playing very good. We just kind of lost it. They didn't learn the songs well that time. But nevertheless, those girls end up giving this tape to Scott, and he ends up taking it to Judas Priest. So let's stop here and leave Tim for a minute, and let's go have some fun with Judas Priest history. You good? good. You ready to go? Good Lord Take me there. I'm so ready. <laughs> Tell me about your first Judas Priest experience. As, as a kid growing up in Middle Tennessee, the Nashville album-oriented rock station, AOR station, which is now a country clear channel garbage, was 103.3 WKDF. And they played, as when I was eight or nine, they played songs from Screaming for Vengeance on the radio. So they played You've Got Another Thing Coming, and they played a couple other tracks from that. That So I bought that cassette because of that experience. And um, and then I saw them, and it was like, whoa, they're like super duper cool. And once I started seeing their videos, I was like hooked because to me it seemed like they were the most – metal band that you could have before I started listening to like thrash or speed because it just seemed the look made it more aggressive because they're all in, in leather and everything. And then they did the, the two guitar, like KK Downing and Glenn Tipton, the guitar players, see, I know their names would do the kiss thing where they would like be in, they would have this synchronicity thing where like during the song, they would like play the guitars yeah. and like move yeah. back and forth, yeah. just do the same thing that, that kiss did. Um, but all those gimmicks kind of worked. You bring up some things that are spot on. And one of them is the is about this look, right? But what a lot of people don't know is that look doesn't show up until like 78. They are a band in the late 60s. 
Oh, no way. Yeah. There's classic confusing local music scene shiftabouts happening, but they're guys from Birmingham, England, playing in different forms and finally hiring in the bass player's girlfriend's brother. You like that? Bass player's girlfriend's brother, a guy named Rob Halford. And he gets he gets brought in in 1973. And much like we heard when learning about Van Halen and Dokken in recent episodes of this show, mid-70s, not a good time for metal. Uh, no. Punk is happening. Rob Halford and the guys are not getting traction. 77, they finally get CBS Records to put out some stuff. And they start to see some movements. And things really start to come together in 78 with an album called killing machine now in britain it's called killing machine in america it's called hellbent for leather yes it is sir. <laughs> and this is obviously where not only do these songs get a little more traditional and palatable the members of the band start wearing studded leather and and this is the look that will define them and you've already said it multiple times that this is Heavy metal, literally and musically. Leather, studs, songs about death and killing and violence, and this stuff starts to sell, right? It's a little bit over the top, but the 80s are good to priests. Lots of records, lots of high-profile appearances. But in 1990, the band, from its earliest form, is now of legal drinking age. So 1990, it's been around for 21 years. It is here that a couple of complications make life in Judas Priest a little less pleasant, especially for Rob Halford. And the first of these is something that we've surely mentioned on the show before, I believe way back in episode 36, Rock and Roll versus Satanic Messages. And it's something that had been brewing in the background oh. by 1990 for five years. Yeah. Oh, man. Do, do you want to fill in the blanks here? Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember as a kid watching on TV seeing Rob Halford on the witness stand and watching them play this music backwards that just sounded like garbage to me, you know? And they're like, doesn't that say the devil wants to stick a poker up your ass? Or like it was, <laughs> and, and it was, it was pained. You could see that yeah. it was not a, a it was a, a very negative experience for the band because it did go on for a little bit too long and it, and it, it hits their reputation and it defines them for a while and and if you don't know anything about this it, it, in 1985 sparks nevada 20 year old james vance and 18 year old raymond belknap shoot themselves in a parking lot two days before christmas um oh yeah it's the holiday too it officially goes to the courtroom now in 1990 five years later and families of these two boys will get these guys in court and allege that the reason their sweet sons tried to take their own lives and only one of them was successful, which is a whole other part of this, which is whoo. Um, but they say it was due to subliminal messaging where when you play the record backwards, someone was saying, do it, do it, do, do it. Do it, yeah. Uh, and that's particularly in a Judas Priest song called Better By You, Better Than Me. Now, this is one thing that's always hung me up, and I'm curious on your opinion on this. That's not even a Judas Priest song. It's, it's a cover of a Spooky Tooth song. True. It, and um, it, it feels to me like if you're going to record, record backmasking to really screw with the youth of America, wouldn't you want to do it in like your own song? And not even that. There's a there's other just lyrics that are in the 
regular going forward <laughs> part that should that should tie up some that's, things. That's and, true. That's true. It's not like it's a Donovan song and you play it backwards and you get some dark stuff. The dark stuff is on the front side. Like you just yeah, there's there's they have a song called "Eat Me Alive" yeah. that says I'm gonna force you at gunpoint to eat me alive. That's pretty. Um, that's ugh. that doesn't right. hold up. So yeah. in this Spooky Tooth song, they didn't want to do it. The record company made them do this. Oh no! After way. stained class was completed, they were like, "Listen, you need to you need to put something else there." So I just I that alone makes me think like that doesn't seem like the right song to have put on trial. But this trial lasts for five weeks. The lawsuit finally gets dismissed by the judge who rules that the so-called subliminal message was, quote, a coincidental convergence of a guitar chord and an exaltation pattern. Um, But if you want to go deep, have you seen this documentary, the PBS documentary? No, no. So tell me about the documentary, because I certainly need to watch that immediately. So so. it's in the show notes. You can watch the whole thing. It's uh, awesome. Comes out in 1991. And it's called Dream Deceivers, the story behind James Vance versus Judas Priest. And it's worth checking out and surfing through to see Rob Halford because you described it. I mean, it is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. Um, But as if that is not enough, Priest will release Painkiller with their new drummer that previously mentioned guy, Scott Travis. Oh, yeah. And what a freaking awesome record, dude. That record kicks so much ass and ram, <laughs> ram it down that's before that kicks so much ass and because they because the reason the reason those two records kick ass brian is ram it down and painkiller is because they're on the heels of of turbo which which i've seen rob halford say like that's when they had lots of cocaine and synthesizers and like that's what <laughs> that's what you know i'm your turbo lover like what is this? Yeah. Um, it still yeah. was kind of cool, but what a departure for that band. Like they had synthesizers. Um, and so so that's 1990. So that's Painkiller, new drummer. And so they hit the road to tour this. And the tour incorporates a part of the show where, and I they may have been doing this somewhat before this, but Halford is riding around on a motorcycle on stage, right? Oh, this is, dude. This is oh, like a man. Thing. Oh, Brian. It's like the thing. It's it's the thing that grabbed me out of my seat. Like watching it, it was like, oh my god, they have a motorcycle on stage. They're like a biker band, but like a band. Yes. So they've been doing this, but on this particular tour, when Rob rides the motorcycle, there is a show in Toronto in '91 where the clouds of dry ice mist are too thick, and he hits a drum riser on the motorcycle. And Halford ends up making it out and finishing, but then they have to take him to the hospital and he's in bad shape. And after all this goes down, he's exhausted. He's literally stood trial for his music. He's been in a vehicular accident in front of thousands of people and he leaves the band. Yeah. And eventually starts fight, which I saw and they were great. Now they were fantastic. If you talk to Halford now, in recent years, this is how he talks about leaving the band. Quote, we went through the Reno trial and were somewhat victorious, and then making Painkiller in that world tour, I think we should have all sat down together and said, I'm going away for two years now. I'm disappearing. I'll see you in two years. But, and now I'm reading from a different piece, uh, 
this is actually a 2020 Ultimate Classic Rock piece. While wanting a break from Judas Priest, he also wanted to make a solo album. And here's another quote. I was told I'd have to leave the band if I wanted to do that, and that wasn't the case. He said it was a miscommunication and a breakdown that lasted a decade. Mm, God stinks. And it's a breakdown in the band that led them to where we started this history lesson. It's the breakdown that led other members of Judas Priest to watch this video that those two girls show up with and give to Scott and to have their people pick up the phone and call this guy in Akron, Ohio, named Tim Owens. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I love talking about rock and roll history. Not as fond about talking about my immune system and my gut health, but if you get in a situation where you are having problems with those things, it becomes very, very important. So let's get you in a place where you're not having problems with those things. I say that because Athletic Greens was created by a guy who experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine that cost him 100 bucks a day. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when he came up with this. It costs you less than $3 a day. It's lifestyle friendly. doesn't matter if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free like half of my house. Any of that is fine. This will still work for you and it's going to do things to help your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, all that stuff. Find out. It's simple. All you have to do is head over to athleticgreens.com slash emerging and take ownership over your health and pick up a little daily nutritional insurance. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. I did read that Tim Owens' number was unlisted at the time, and so they end up calling his parents' house. I, it's, as, do you know the number for Ripper, uh, Ripper Owens? Um, <laughs> well, he's not Ripper yet. That's coming. We're back in coming. 1996, and here's Tim talking. Uh, and so the band called me and said, quote, is that really you singing, or are you miming? Uh, the music doesn't sound right. Remember, he said the band sounded terrible the night they recorded, but your voice sounds spot on. And he said, no, no, it's really me. So here's the specifics of how this happened. I did a little more digging to find out the actual order of events. One of those girls with the videotape was dating Scott Travis. Judas Priest is going back to England to do final auditions to find somebody to do lead singing if they reform. And the girlfriend tells Scott about this tape and he has no interest in watching it, so she puts it in his luggage. And then at some point, when they're over there watching singer after singer come in for auditions, he pulls that tape out out of curiosity and they watch it and they're blown away. And they don't know who this guy is, and they don't know how to get in touch with him, so Scott calls the girl. The girl calls Tim, because she's fans with both bands, and Tim is instructed, listen, call this person who is Judas Priest's manager. So he calls the manager, and she says, do you have a passport? They put him on a plane, and two days later, he's in England, so they can all see each other in person and see if the voice is as real as it sounds on the tape. Mm. I've got a, a question about Rockstar the movie, but I want to hold it. Yeah, to... yeah, yeah. Oh, we're going to get there. Okay, all right. So this 20-something from Akron flies to Wales and has walked into a giant studio where all these childhood heroes of his are sitting. And they're like, hey, nice to meet you. Let's get dinner and you can audition tomorrow. And Tim goes, no, I will not be able to sleep tonight. Let's do it. <laughs> such a great it's like what a drag because 
like having to come in to fill in for like a famous front man. It, it's like you're a footnote. But what an amazing rock and roll story that is. Oh. No, 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 no. I'm going to we're doing this right now. Un- unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, no, go ahead. Turn it on. And so they give him the track without the vocals to this song. Now, the story goes that basically when he hits that note, Tipton just turns the thing off and comes over the studio speaker and goes, okay, you're in. Uh, (laughs) Now, in later interviews, Tim will explain that he then made him finish the song anyway, but he did end up going into the studio or into the control room after singing it, and they were like, yeah, dude, like, for real, do you want this gig? He then goes says okay now I'm gonna I want to do Ripper and so they give him the track to Ripper and he does Ripper and that night at dinner they will tell him there's one condition to his employment and that is that the name Tim is not very rock and roll so by the end of their time together (laughs) they christen him Ripper Owens the new lead singer of the actual Judas Priest sometimes when I think about Tim I think about Monty Python (laughs) he's got the pointy teeth his name is Tim or whatever, Tim. Whatever, where Tim's name is. Uh, yeah, he, Ripper Owens. So I saw Ripper Owens, dude. I saw a tour with Ripper Owens. Tell, tell me it about great. it. Tell me about it. What was the venue size? Uh, it was about like 2,500 or so. Okay. Um, it was decent for that and, tour. And I, I mean, this is the 2000. This is 20 years ago. It's like, it's not the nineties. I should be like even more blurrier, but I swear that anthrax is on the bill. And I was watching anthrax with, with John Bush and not Joey Belladonna. Like I was watching two bands without their original singers, Oh yeah. but, but that may have not happened, but I'm pretty sure that I, I'm pretty sure that happened. Now you mentioned this tour, the, before they get to the tour, the first thing they make him do is record an album and he makes jugulator with them. Do you like jugulator? Uh, no. Yeah, you know, you like can't get it. Like it barely exists anymore in the ether. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then they launch press. Then they tour. Then they do a second record called Demolition. There's more touring. Eventually, rumors start flying about how much money they'll make if they reconcile with Halford. Rip, uh, Ripper sees the writing on the wall. And long story short, he's going to take a gig with Iced Earth that actually he says in later interviews pays him more is a better financial deal for him to go sing for Iced Earth. And he he, he also says he gets a fax that says he's fired at some point from Judas Priest. Um, it, it's a real letdown when like the it starts beeping. You're like, oh, I'm getting a, a fax. And a fax that says you're fired. <laughs> That's so lame. It's like breaking up over fax. That's <laughs> so stupid. His, his career is kind of like this for a while. He, he will take over singing positions in metal bands or for metal legends. He'll stay for a few records and then he'll move on or get fired or whatever. Um, you know, he he sings for Ingwe Malmsteen for two records. Did you know this? I had no freaking idea, dude. And Ingwe Ingve has a, uh, what do you call it? The thing at the front of the hotel that spins around? That's that's what his his lead singer situation. Oh, yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's just a carousel, right. He, he had JoLynn Turner for a couple of records, and I thought those were good, but I had no idea that Ripper Owens was the singer for... Uh, Right. Again, it's like uh, when you start your career this way, it's sort of what you're setting yourself up for, too, is just you're, you're going to do these sorts of gigs, which is fine. I mean, you get to you get to sort of taste the wine, right? Like it's it's a, probably yeah. a great gig, um, but it's different 
than having this sort of on your own or being the original singer in a band. And, you know, there's a lot of different elements to that. But let's loop back to where we started with this whole conversation and let's talk about this movie called Rockstar. Now, Tim says he's on the golf course in Akron when his mom calls him and tells him that movie studios have been calling the house. Uh, Like I said, this comes on the heels of that New York Times article in 1997 that breaks this story wide open in the arts section. Now, you can read this original tale in the show notes if you want to see it. Warner Brothers gets the rights. They hire the screenwriter named John Stockwell to do the script, and they sign Brad Pitt to play the lead. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. I dug up this treasure of an op-ed. Well, it's like sort of op-ed, sort of fluff piece, sort of diary entry that Stockwell will write for Entertainment Weekly explaining how he prepared for and researched the writing of this script. And I have to say, a full 15 years before we entered into constant conversation about the elites versus Trump's America, this yeah. article does nothing to endear a Hollywood screenwriter to readers in middle America. <laughs> it's it's terrible. Stockwell says a bunch of dopey shit like, uh, I needed to get the world right. I needed to get to those industrial ghost towns with plenty of angry white males who hated the rap crap and still flew the flag for heavy metal. Uh, and then when he describes Tim Owen's hometown, he says, he literally writes... The 80s weren't making a comeback in Akron. They'd never left. I hung out in black-lit cinder-block bars that sold buckets of beer and hosted ugly bartender contests. I chatted up, quote, nail technicians with bear claw bangs held in place with rave rocket fuel. (coughs) What an a-hole, man. What an a-hole. He sounds like a real piece of work. And I might not be the only person to ever think that because Brad Pitt will drop off this project due to, quote-unquote, creative differences at some point. Yeah. And was there anyone else other than Brad Brad Pitt in line for this? Well, not for that role, but the original working title for the movie is Metal God. And George Clooney, he's just started Maysville Pictures. If you watch the opening credits to this, you will see that Clooney is still listed as an EP. So George Clooney and Brad Pitt are originally attached to this movie, which is amazing to think about. Uh, Stand up and shout. Wahlberg seems to have gotten this gig because he just done Three Kings with Clooney. Mm. Oh, yeah. And and here's my favorite tidbit. Now, we've learned a lot about Mark Wahlberg in the intervening years between Rockstar and now and about I mean, you've seen all the stuff about his workout schedule and everything, right? Uh, well, yeah. He spends 5 months working with a vocal coach, growing his hair, and quote-unquote attending the metal scene in LA. And here's the best thing I read in all of this research. During this period while they're making the movie, he wanders around Los Angeles in character, which is amazing to think about. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> when you have that, by the way, when you had the, this is a totally left turn, which is the total uh-huh. us. When you had the DVD, did you have like the extras and the bloopers at uh, the yeah. end? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, like, what, you like, keep action. acting like this is the past. This is not the past. The, the DVD player is in, or the DVD is in my DVD player right now, three rooms away. <laughs> Like it's it's here. It's with us. I don't know. I know because I remember like when I got to see your new place. I was like, oh my god, this is like movie room. I yeah, wish I knew yeah. what my DVD player was. Yeah, like, no, I got it. Clip. I pulled this one out. It was good. Also, watched like half a Dead Presidents this week. Shout out. Okay. Um. Yeah. So after all of that, um, after all of that preparation, this is not a great Mark Wahlberg performance. Like, I mean, it's fine, but it just feels like Mark Wahlberg being Mark Wahlberg. Like he just gets angry and the accent gets stronger. <laughs> And, and mascara or eyeliner. Oh, there's it's, a whole scene where he's changing copy paper and the guy's staring at his eyes. I mean, you yeah. you can definitely 
it does feel like 1985 through a 2001 lens Mm-hmm. watching yeah, it in 2022 like it's very strange right because you've got this like out of time shift thing happening where it's 20 something years ago reflecting on 20 something years before that yeah and it's it's definitely doesn't feel like an 80s movie it, it's no just, not at you all know, it's not at you know, all it's you know that that's what the setting is especially now that we've seen some really well done homages to the 80s right like I mean, Stranger Things comes to mind. Amazing, where you feel like this is exactly it, right? Mm-hmm. And this yeah, is like, yeah. this feels literally like a costume party. Like, it feels like regular L.A., where, and they just, like, put some banners up that said it was 1980. Now, there are more ludicrous performances. One thing that I love about this, you realize Dominic West from The Wire is is in this, wearing a wig the whole time? No, but I know who else is, and I'll let you talk about that uh, in a minute. I did not know that. Oh, you go. yeah, I know you're. Uh, yes, I know you want to step on this, but let me talk about that. I'm not uh, going to say it. Timothy Oliphant, who a very young Timothy Oliphant, is in this movie in an amazing wig, and the Jennifer Aniston character that they create for this, which has no connection to the Tim Ripper story at all. Yeah, um, and no, and no depth. At no, all. no depth, and it's <laughs> it's also awesome because Friends is still on the air at this point. This came out in two thousand one. Friends is on it the sh- air until two thousand four. It should have just killed at the box office, just along from the, the Jennifer haircut. I mean, there's a whole thing about how none of the Friends ever could ever could anchor a movie ever. They all tried, and they still try, and they can't do it. Um, nope. So the Judas Priest guys. I mean, I just described what a train wreck a lot of this is, and the Judas Priest guys get disillusioned really quickly during the making of it. They ask for creative input. The studio tells them no. The studio eventually backs pretty far away from saying it's even based on Tim's story. Now, see, this is what happened. They yeah. uh, they optioned this piece. They get this screenwriter in on it. They end up bringing in another screenwriter because he's struggling um, to do some rewrites. And it gets so far away from the actual story that they can't really promote it as being the Tim Ripper story, which mm. I think was originally the plan. And, you know, this is like sort of predates why well, I mean, this has always happened. But in the last few years, we've seen tons of movies that have been based on pieces out of the New Yorker, right? Like or the New York Times like this. This is a big thing um, yeah. over the last few years where somebody will write a decent, you know, 5,000 word piece and it all of a sudden becomes a feature film. One that comes to mind quickly is Hustlers, which was a great uh, Jennifer Lopez movie from a few years ago about um, some strippers who, who start sort of taking matters into their own hands. Oh yeah, that's right. Very, very good film. And that's based on a, a piece in, in, a, in some prestigious thing. I think it was the, the Times or the or New Yorker magazine or something. So this now happens all the time. But this was happening even then, right? This New York Times piece, they actually get the intellectual property rights to the piece. And then they really don't actually have to exercise the rights because they back so far away from the actual story of Tim Ripper Owens. Though they keep all the all the functional sort of fun stuff that actually isn't the story, right? Like, for instance, his mom is very supportive uh, his and and in the movie, there's like mm-hmm. this ongoing joke about how his mom and dad are very supportive. In real life, Tim Owens' dad got like like at the age like in his fifties got like a Judas Priest tattoo when Tim joined the band, and then like pierced his ears, like you know, like like just cool fun stuff like that, right? That they sort of incorporate into the story. That's kind of cool, yeah. And, and the the way that they depict the audition uh, is somewhat similar 
you know, because he walks in and does sort of perform in front of them and they sort of go, okay, yeah, you're in, um, which is actually how it happened. Uh, some of the stuff that you would think wouldn't be accurate is accurate. Uh, the thing about the, the basically the two groupies, the the women who know both bands, that actually is part of the story, though. When I rewatched it today or this week, I was like, that seems there's no way that can be right. And no, that's actually a that's a real detail from the story. So it's it's kind of crazy. But if you don't and this is where you're this is where you're pushing me. If you don't have the cred of the band, if you don't have Judas Priest letting you promote this as the Judas Priest story, how do you get rock fans to buy into it? Yeah. Well, and, and maybe and maybe pop stars. <laughs> you you round out the cast with real life rockers. And to be honest, this is what you're trying to get me to admit. The real reason this movie made my radar 20 years ago is because it marks a role in a major movie, I think the first one ever, and maybe the only one, for the lead singer of my second favorite band of all time, Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blind. Who apparently, according to 60 songs that made the 90s, is a gigantic prick. Uh, a net negative person is what Rob Harvilla calls him, uh, or someone on that podcast calls him negative. to Rob, Rob Harvilla. Yeah, who has produced some of the biggest records uh, in the last 20, 30 years. What, a negative person is pretty negative net negative when when you say that you will not be surprised to hear that he very convincingly plays an a-hole in this movie he's an absolute he, a-hole yeah that's the that's his role now other other actual rock royals in this film uh not not brian's favorite pop stars uh dawkins jeff pilson yeah uh, uh black label society founder and ozzy osbourne guitarist zach wilde is in this movie yeah jason Pardon. bottom is in this movie <laughs> Yeah, I remember Jason Bonham. I forgot all about Zach Wilde for some reason. Uh, Miles Kennedy shows up. And do you do you remember who does the singing voice and the songs for Steel Dragon and for Mark Wahlberg? Oh, no, I forgot already. It's Steel Heart. Totally forgot. Uh, other rando rockers. Steel Panther frontman Ralph Sainz is in it for like three seconds. Uh, and the weirdest fit. You think Steven Jenkins is a weird fit. Brian Vander Ark of the Verve Pipe is in this movie. Wow. Uh, that must. I wonder how they just started going down the call list of who to add. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, at a certain point, you start getting a drummer, Blas Elias from Slaughter. Like, you know, I mean, it's... <laughs> It, it gets it gets real deep. They, they went to the bench. Uh, now, a lot of today's episode is pulled from this piece that Rolling Stone ran just last month, talking to Tim Ripper Owens at length about his whole career. And when it comes to the subject of this movie, the thing that he gets most hung up on is that it makes the Wahlberg character a borderline stalker of the band. And in this interview, Owens is pretty quick to play down how much he actually liked Judas Priest. <laughs> he said, here's a quote. I also wasn't that crazy fan. First of all, like I said, I wasn't in the Judas Priest tribute band at the time that they contacted me. When I was in high school, I had the posters on my wall, yes. But at this point, I was on my own and had a kid. I was working. I didn't go around dressed like that. <laughs> Which I just think it's so funny. He gets so hung up on that. Uh, also, he says that all of the trappings of rock and roll, and you sort of alluded to this, all the stuff portrayed in the second half of this film. Uh, which we should say, the second half of this film go sort of bananas because it's about this guy, the Mark Wahlberg character, losing his mind with the fame and sex and drugs and rock and roll, right? 
which is which is a cliche, but like you feel the rewrite. Like, oh, you feel you feel the you feel the extra writer. Yeah, you feel it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says that that just didn't really happen in his time with Judas Priest because, and if you think about it, it makes sense because they're all older. They've been in the span for twenty something years, and they're playing small clubs. So in the movie, they're playing arenas. Like they just, the guy quits in the middle of this giant arena tour and it's the eighties and they're still huge. But when Tim Rubens is in the band, it's late nineties. So metal is not that popular. And they're playing, like you said, this is why I asked you the capacity on that club, a 2,500 yeah. C venue, not a 18,000 C venue. And so he, he says, um, Quote, there were so many things that were different, but obviously they had to change it. I heard they went out with other bands like Pantera, and they took a lot of ideas from that. That's how I can see the sex and drugs coming into play, because their backstage was actually like that. Now, that point about spending time with Pantera in research for the film checks out, because in that EW piece from the screenwriter that I mentioned, this is a quote, I flew to Omaha to see Pantera perform. This is a band that gets no radio, no videos on MTV, but they sell a ton of records and have rabid fans. They drink rock gut whiskey, own a strip club, and stay up for five days in a row. And they took me on their tour bus and gave me a crash course in rock and roll excess. Before they kicked me off the bus, they warned me to get it right or else. <laughs> By the way, I've watched Pantera videos like real recently, like live videos from the early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s. And there was a time there where they were untouchable as far as a metal band. Like they clear, like I couldn't imagine like, for example, Metallica having to go on after that, like bands that like are just huge marquee bands having to go on after them because it was, I mean, it was brutal. Like the whole thing was, and they were, there was nothing it was just a brutality of like whatever ninety minutes watching that band. The um, the the strip club they own is in Texas, right? I I guess so. I think that's where where um, Dimebag and and Vinnie Paul. I think that they're they're Texas guys, right? That's, there there is this story in the Dave Grohl book about he and Taylor. Have we talked about this? No, about we he, talked about he this. and Taylor getting an invite to go to the Pantera strip club, and he loses his wallet on the way. And when they get there, they can't get in because Grohl doesn't have an ID. And like they can't get a hold of the guys in Pantera to let him in. It's an amazing story. I highly recommend that book. And he doesn't get to get in. He doesn't get to go. So he never gets to go. And then years later, he's like somehow either back in that gas station that they stopped at on the way where he lost it. Like he doesn't know that he lost it there. But at some point, like he gets that wallet back. It's it's an absolutely unbelievable story. Oh wow! Uh, so anyway, not the story we're here to talk about. Let's talk about how people felt about this film when it came out. Like I said, uh, it came out on the weekend before September 11th, which is unfortunate. Um, but it it cost 57 million dollars to make. Do you want to take a stab at how much money it made? 32. Oh, you're so generous. 19 million dollars. Ah. I mean, this is they reserve the term box office bomb for movies that perform like this. Uh, but, you know, I mean, maybe Tim and the band were right to be cranky about it. I'm glad they distanced themselves from it. It's probably not a millstone you want to carry around your neck, being known specifically uh, to be part of that 
movie. Though <laughs> the interviewer in this more recent uh, interview with with Tim Owens does say like, is there a part of you that's pretty flattered that they like made a movie that was sort of based on your life with Mark Wahlberg? And he's like, he he said he has some joke where people ask him about the movie about his life that where Mark Wahlberg plays him, and he's like, oh yeah, you've seen Boogie Nights. <laughs> Oh, that's so great. That's so great. <laughs> All right. As we wrap this story, it feels like a miss if we don't mention that this regular guy gets to join a legendary band plot has actually played out again since Ripper and Priest parted ways. Now, some might try to shoe in the story of Arnel Pineda from Journey, but the thing that gets missed there is Arnel had been in the music industry for like two decades internationally when he gets the Journey call. He had solo albums. He had a new band at the time. Like, So it's not really the same. Uh, but this was the case, uh, or, or I should say that wasn't the case with Tommy DiCarlo. In 2007, Boston singer Brad Delp takes his own life, and Tommy, a Home Depot credit manager in North Carolina, felt moved enough to post a tribute video to him on MySpace, in which he sang Don't Look Back. He sends an email with links to the Boston camp asking to be part of the tribute show, and Tom Schultz, Boston's badass guitar god, heard his wife playing the performance video from the other room and went in to ask her why she was playing old recordings of Brad Delp. Yikes. He's so impressed with this 43-year-old middle manager of Home Depot that the band invites him to the Brad tribute show and then hires him to be the front band, the front man on tour. And that, And th- this doesn't like... That wasn't like big, huge news. You know, it's like that doesn't anchor like a big thing in rock and roll history. They haven't made a movie about it, Uh, but it's pretty awesome. (laughs) And at one point early on, I think now they just use him for a while. Do you remember they they had Michael Sweet and him both on tour? That's correct. They had Michael Sweet from from Sty- from Striper, yeah. I didn't think they made a record after Third Stage, though, right? That was 87. No, no, I don't think there's any records. They just tour, yeah. Yeah. which is a smart move. Okay, one last bit about Judas Priest that's unrelated to the larger story but is legendary, and I feel like we have to talk about it because it happened in the town in which you and I reside. Thus, I feel it is worth mentioning. Um, let me just read this article from WLKY TV. Um, This goes back a few years to 2019. Painkiller by Judas Priest may be the band's most popular song. They've played it a countless number of times, and Louisville's Louder Than Life Music Festival is no exception. For the fans, it was another great performance, but for one of the musicians, it was a bit unusual. Quote, I became a bit lightheaded and it didn't go away, said Richie Faulkner, lead guitarist. Now, he joins the band in like 2011. Quote, I have never passed out in my life, but I felt like I was going to pass out at any minute. Halfway through the song, a major blood vessel in Faulkner's heart began to tear. Blood wasn't properly filtering through to his heart, and he said he felt like it was exploding. Quote, my first reaction was, isn't to get off stage, Faulkner said. It's to see if we can brave through it and give the fans what they asked for. I was not aware of how important it could be. I had to finish the song. But if I would have known how important it was, maybe I would have left more quickly. Little did he know he was moments from dying. He was then transported to Jewish hospital with his heart in a condition that surgeons say was one of the worst they had ever seen. In medical terms, Faulkner on stage was having an aortic 
aneurysm. God, I remember that. This is so bizarre. I was so, I remember, dude, it's so wild. Surgeons immediately put him on an operating table and tried everything they could to keep him alive. It took them 10 and a half hours in surgery, but he made it through. It's a situation Faulkner said has forever changed his life, and now he's hoping it does the same to you. Uh, I don't know if you've seen pictures of this guy, but he looks 60. He's He was 41 at the time. Uh. <laughs> he's lived a hard life. Uh, doctors say nearly 80% of people who've had Faulkner's condition do not survive. Uh, wow. Unbelievable. Uh, you know, also, like, lots of medical stuff with that band. Uh, I believe it's Glenn was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So he's had to, like, formally retire. Yeah, that's right. And then they've... There's definitely been some strife with, with like, KK. how things have kind of worked out here at the end with the original members and who that that scene, so... Well, and I don't know if you know this, but KK and Tim Ripper are back together, and they're doing KK's Priest, yes. and Ripper is singing. Yeah. yeah. So that's so. that's a, that's a whole thing. For the show notes, I sent over a link to you, Brian, to put in uh, for everybody to watch my favorite Rob Halford walk out on stage moment ever. Oh hell yeah! And and you'll you'll see it when you see it. I don't even need to don't even need to sell it to everybody <laughs> else. Just, it, you'll know. Listen, if you have a favorite Rob Halford walk out on stage moment, please by all means send me the link too. We are the Story Guys at Gmail You can get in touch uh, there or on Facebook if you look for we or for look for the Story Guys. The website is we thestoryguys.com and anywhere you've downloaded this show we'd love it if you would leave a review and let other people know that you're enjoying it so that we can continue to invite more people to the party right uh, on. Oh. until next time Murdoch keep you- living after midnight and <laughs> telling stories <laughs> you were ready Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.